are listening to Cold Lake Community Church Podcast. I hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families come together. Uh, so we're speaking about the culture of heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And a great thing to see a baby dedication, people's hands out, us blessing, to really showcase um, that heavenly culture here in our worldly culture. Sometimes I find myself awake at night, uh, early in the morning. I get up and uh, start to write what the Lord has put on my heart. It's interesting about God's message and what he has for us. We never know how far it's going to go. We never know uh, the message that you hear from, from today, if it's going to be something that you pass on to a friend, something that you're going to experience later on in life. So today's message might not be for you. It might not be for you today, but maybe tomorrow, maybe a year from now, or a friend, something that you pass on to. It says that God's plan is perfect. I have an idea, a saying of sorts, it's called the cobwebs of life. You see, cobwebs are strong. They connect. And oftentimes, we really don't know how far they'll go. We don't know where they start or where they're going to end. In hindsight, it's a beautiful tapestry, interconnected. Our lives are kind of like that too. We never know in God's great plan where a message or a loving act might go. But I think on that day, when we're with him, he will showcase his divine work, his tapestry, the cobwebs of life, how they connect, and more importantly, how we are all connected as children carrying out his divine will. The message that I'm sharing today, like all messages from the Spirit that are shared, is for everyone. I asked my kids about today's message when we, when about, the, about the culture of heaven. Today's uh, message is on that of love. It's on biblical love versus cultural love. So I asked my kids, I said, how do you know that your dad loves you? And it's interesting when we talk to kids, their responses. I know my daughter said, well, it's because you cut the edges off my sandwich. They said, because you read to me before I go to bed. Their answers were very, very different than the answers that we hear about love in the world today. There were actions. It was that when there was a bad, my daughter had a bad dream that she could come to me in the middle of the night and cuddle with me. There was all these different action scenarios that my daughter talked about that allowed her to understand that I loved her. There are many words that are misused misunderstood and thrown around, and some that are so powerful yet so contrasting to what the Bible represents it to be. And I believe that love is one of those words. In Ephesians 5, 1, 2, it says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, Love is a tricky word, yet relationships, actions, inactions, many things in our lives we equate in how we interpret or misinterpret this word. Culturally, especially now, it is probably the most powerful word and leads people down paths of their lives, all in how one understands the word love. As Christians, we believe in God's word. It says in Romans 12:2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The question I have for you today is this, is are Christians conforming 
to the pattern of the world in relation to the ideas and concepts of love? And the sad answer is yes. The visible evidence of unforgiveness, divorce, and family separation virtually being the same in the church as it is in the world means that our understanding and practice of what love is has and is conforming to this world. And I'm here to tell you why. It's because we share an enemy. You see, we've made the enemy in our culture not like how we're supposed to view him in a heavenly culture. He's not Yosemite Sam with a, a pitchfork, right? He's, he wants to be seen as this character, that, this caricature story that doesn't really exist, does not pose a threat to us. You see, in a kingdom, which is the way we should be thinking, in a heavenly kingdom way, kingdoms have walls, okay? And those walls are there to fortify what's within that kingdom, and that's us. And those walls protect us from what's outside of those walls, which is our enemy. And we need to realize this in a kingdom culture and in a heavenly culture here on earth that we do have this enemy and he's outside those walls. It says in 2 Corinthians, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven it in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. You see, if we acknowledge that our view of love is worldly, and we want it to be biblical, we need to first realize how and where we tripped up on this. How the enemy worked this lie in so we can better prepare our hearts and minds and move from a worldly view of love to a biblical view of love. We need to understand the schemes of Satan. So let's first look at his schemes, namely his first and most important one. It says in Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And then there's a question mark there. You see, we see Satan's tactic here. First, Satan knows God's word. That's not comforting. He knows it. He's schooled in it. He knew what God had instructed. And as a master of deception, it's unsettling to realize that Satan might have a better grasp or understanding on God's word than some of us. So what does Satan do? He questions what God had said. That's why there's a question mark at the end of it. And what God had commanded. He places doubt into Eve's mind. Next, Eve responds to Satan. She says, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must touch, not touch it or you will die. You see, what I like about this part here is we see that Eve is not confused. She understood what God had said. Why? Because God is easy to understand. This is the opposite in our culture today. How many times do we hear, well, it's all interpretation? Right? We hear that all the time. God's not easy to understand. Right? True, there are things that we don't clearly understand in the Word, but we shouldn't take that line of thinking for everything in the Bible. Because there are things, like the instructions given to Eve, that are quite easy to understand. Culture, on the other hand, our worldly culture, wants us to be able to say, well, God... I didn't really understand the instruction manual when you said to use a hammer and not a screwdriver. God's word is not a manual for a bunk bed set for Ikea. How many of you put that together? Those are a nightmare. You see, we have God's word, and some things in there are pretty black and white. The things that matter most, that's how salvation is freely given. How to attain it through being born again are quite clear. There's no way to the Father except through the Son. 
It's so clear, yet our culture believes that there are millions of different ways to reach God. Satan wants us to be confused, but God is clear. He was clear in the garden that Eve was able to paraphrase to Satan what God had instructed. Now this is where Satan ups his game. So he questions God's word. You will not certainly die, the serpent said, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he questions God's word and then he denies God's word. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. You know, I take a bite of that fruit every single day. And I thank God that I have a Savior to forgive me for that. And when it talks about Satan's lies, Adolf Hitler said two things that really relate to the way Satan operates. He said, the bigger the lie, the more people will believe it. Adolf Hitler also said, the best way for people to believe a lie is to use truth. Satan did that and does that. There are remnants in our culture today about what Eve, be Eve believed and what is going on today with women. This lie, that women told, uh, this lie that Satan told Eve is still in the hearts and minds of women here in this room. And I'm going to prove it to you. Let me paraphrase first. Satan said, eat of the fruit, your eyes will be open, you will be like what? Like God's. Right? I'm at Walmart with my two beautiful girls in the lineup, and there's magazines there. And what's on the front of them? There's beautiful women. And what does it say on Cosmo? A hundred different ways to look younger, to not age, to be like what? To be like a God. Psychology Today wrote, ads and social media portray youth as sexy, attractive, cool, and oh so connected. Look at any magazine, movie, video game, or TV show and it's easy to see. In 2011 alone, Americans spent $10.4 billion on cosmetic surgery and annually $1.2 billion is spent on liposuction. 800 million on hair transplants, and 11 billion on vitamins and supplements. And there's no greater compliment we can pay to one another than to say, you look so young. Celebrities are having their bodies frozen. Time Magazine did an article about how humans are on a quest to learn to live longer and even indefinitely. Zombies, vampires, and werewolves all have seen an increase in popularity, and they all share the ability to not age and to live forever, not experiencing death. Vampire novels and television programs have images of young, good-looking boys who don't age, don't die, and middle-aged mothers are flocking to the next film or book release. And just think about how popular Twilight is. There are supplements, creams, and herbs, as well as gurus and public speakers who, for, for a price, offer the ability to move your body physically and spiritually to a place of immortality. So what's propelling this obsession? How about the truth? There's a truth here that Satan uses. There's a reason why people are gravitating towards this, and the truth is, is that you do live forever because of what Christ did on the cross. So Satan uses this, and he knows, because he knows God's word, and he says, here's the deception I'm going to use, and people in the worldly culture are flocking towards the Christian ideals that we have. John 8.44 says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's lie about love 
he uses so many different tactics. The Western concept of love is much the same. It has been manipulated and polluted to actually be contrary to what the biblical idea of love actually is. Love has become a paradox in our culture. It's become a self-contradictory idea that oftentimes leads to separation instead of unity. I've heard from many couples and have read many testimonies in books and magazines where couples say this, I fell out of love. We hear it all the time. I fell out of love. You can't fall out of love. You can fall out of repentance, but you can't fall out of love. And I'm going to explain to you why. When a person says they have fallen out of love, what they want, when they want to leave their spouse, they're, they're trying to absolve themselves of responsibility that, by taking a position that, well, if I can't be loving, then what can I do? When you say that, you're calling God a liar. Okay? Please don't take offense. Stay for the whole sermon. <laughs> you see, God says that we can also love whom? Our enemies. And God's not a liar. So if you can love your enemy, clearly you can love your spouse, because God's not a liar. The love that God promises we have for our enemies comes from God through the power of the Holy Spirit and resides in and through us. And even though we may not feel like we may want to be particularly friendly towards our spouse, we can still choose to love them with the love that God gives. I don't know how many of you have read um, any of C.S. Lewis's books, but I have them all, and I'm slowly working through trying to read them all. One of the hardest was uh, the Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters was a very difficult read. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that if he wrote another letter from Screwtape, it would have destroyed him. It's a, a letter about a demon trying to possess a person. In it, uh, Screwtape, he, who's a demon, writes, we have done this undermining monogamy through poet and novelist by persuading the humans that a curious and usually short-lived experience, which they call being in love, is the only respectable ground for marriage, that marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent, and that a marriage which does not do so is no longer binding. This idea is our parody of an idea that came from the enemy. Our culture says to follow your heart. You see it in the, the movies and romance novels. Follow your heart. You hear it all the time. If you don't love them, follow your heart. But the book of Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. You see, we need to guard our hearts. Your heart isn't always right. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Sometimes you don't need to follow your heart. You need to guard it especially when it comes to our worldly culture. First John says, let us love one another, for love comes from God. It says, love comes from God. You see, culture doesn't believe love comes from God. It believes it comes from Channing Tatum's eyes. They're beautiful, okay? They're great. But it believes that love comes from other things. But we, living in a heavenly culture, believe that love comes from God. Love doesn't emanate from us. It emanates from him. As Christians, we have access to true love, the love of God. That's why it says in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. God, the Son, and Holy Spirit work together to bring love into the believer that is you and I and begin a work in us and through us. Part of that work is love. The ability to take that love and outwardly express it towards our enemies, but most importantly, those that we love around us. It's nothing short of a miracle. 
It is something God makes available to all Christians. That is why in the book of Matthew, Jesus says we have the ability to love our enemies. But our spouse is not our enemy. Our enemy is our enemy. Our spouse should be our ally against our enemy. Do not, do not, do not ever say that you've fallen out of love. Instead, believe that God is with you and in you. And with him and through him, you have the ability to love your spouse, your enemy, the people in your life, the way God has called you to. Before we move on, quickly, I think it's important uh, to, to understand that the enemy has perpetrated another lie, woven it together with this lie about love, in order to move people away from each other, and more importantly, away from God. And there's three things. It's consumerism, disposability, and momentary happiness. How many of you remember growing up and having a Betamax? Awesome were those. See, no one wants to age themselves. They had a Betamax. You guys all know what this was. And then after Betamax came the VHS. I remember my daughter is so scared of our VHS player because it makes noises. She's, she doesn't like it, right? Uh, but on the corner of every street corner, not every street corner, but uh, there were a lot of them, they had VHS repair shops. You have to go get the heads cleaned, right? And you could all, you, they had all sorts of repair shops. They had appliance repair shops. You could get a TV fixed. Maybe younger people are saying, well, why would you take things to go get fixed? And I'll tell you, because they were broken. Um, <laughs> we don't do that anymore. We don't take things to go get fixed. A lot of people keep the receipt and take it back to Walmart and get a new one. Don't do that. But a lot of people do that. Um, but a lot of people buy new things, right? Because we don't fix things anymore. The things in our lives become very disposable. So in our understanding of love, we need to think of it as a cake. So we have this, we have this disposability, right? And then we're going to add to our cake consumerism, okay? We're a very consumeristic culture now. Now, I don't know if many of you know this, but if you go on Google and you type in something, you're going to get a different response than if I go to my computer and type it in Google. And the reason why is there's algorithms in the computer that track what you buy. And it's all to get your money. Right? That's what it's for. There are psychologists and, and many different firms that are, use psychology all in advertising and consumerism all to find out what you like and how to spend your money. So we've got consumerism, disposability, and lastly, we have momentary happiness. If there's something you want right now, you can get it. It's just a click of a button. Bad credit, no credit, no money, no problem. You can have it. Drive it away today, no money down. You don't have cash, take money against your next paychecks for six months free. We will even give you money. And when it doesn't make you happy, just throw it away and buy something else. These ideas bleed into our worldly culture and into Satan's lies about what love is. Right? We take that idea and we say, you know what? If my spouse isn't giving me what I think I need, I'm going to get rid of it because it's just a mouse click away to get a new relationship. And I'll be happy again. I'll be momentarily happy. And then if that one doesn't work out, I'll just dispose of that and get something else. This commercialistic idea, when we take it into our marriage and our relationships here, it's, it's so disjointed and the opposite of what love is. I read uh, this about love from Focus on the Family. It says, throughout history, songs, drama, and poems have lauded romance. Today, movies and advertising do the same thing. Romance was designed by God but it pales in comparison to the sacrificial nature of unconditional love. Romantic love looks for what it can get 
Unconditional love looks for what it can give. The root of any romance today is love, but it wasn't always that way. Past cultures came together because of arranged marriages. Through parents, marriages joined lands or kingdoms. Love really didn't have anything to do with it. Love, that is how it is seen culturally, is a new concept and is used to market everything from clothes to jewelry and even relationships. I mean, think about when people talk about how much they spend on their weddings, how that's changed. Now, I'm not saying as a woman you should marry a guy because you are arranged or because he owns a dry cleaning business, or that as a guy that you should fly to Barcelona and just marry some chick from Spain. Just to get the idea that love and marriage and how we view it has changed culturally. Today, especially in our culture, love is the only thing that matters. This overemphasis on love is encouraged by media that tells stories, sings songs, and writes books about how true love conquers all, is ultimately fulfilling, and brings a never-ending wealth of happiness, and is rarely marred by significant conflict, and above all, is this inward feeling that should and must never fade. Love has begun political movements to allow gay marriage, polygamy, and bisexuality. Love seems to be the most important thing in our culture, and if you disagree, you are considered a person who breeds hate and bigotry. We as Christians are not allowed to judge or question anything if the motivating power of that decision is love. It's true. And just a little sidebar here, I don't have anything written on this, but we are living right now in unprecedented times where we will be judged. We have people in a different part of the world killing people because they're Christians. It is happening right now, and it is not only happening over there, it's making its way over here. Now, I'm not a fear monger, and I have faith that God's plan is perfect. And I pray for the soldiers and for Christians worldwide that are going through such persecution. But we can't have our blinders on. We need to understand that in our culture, all these things are working together to draw us away from God. And it is a time like this more than ever where we should be drawing closer to him. A practicing psychologist, Dr. Reed Datsman, said, a real relationship is one where you take out the garbage, pay the bills, and talk about your kids. A lot of it is really boring stuff. What people don't realize, though, is that the best day of their lives includes all that boring stuff, too. Because when people don't have it, they really miss it. A guy who had just had an affair really misses his wife and would love to be back with her talking about trivial things. These concepts are hard to swallow when the media portrays love to be more desirable than what is experienced in reality. Couples start to think if there is something wrong when their relationship doesn't match up to what the media displays. The enemy even uses social media to deceive when it comes to love, and more importantly, how we view love within relationships. You see, love is everywhere on Facebook, right? Facebook's crazy. Facebook, I always say, is kind of like this room. Okay, this is Facebook. It's great. Got our hands raised. Things are great. What's going on on Facebook? People are buying new cars. There's kids like crazy. I tell them all not to drink the water here. We have bottled water. Um, it's, it's nuts, right? People are going camping, killing deer, and then this is Facebook. And then, but what's really happening is Facebook has this darker place back here where there's all sorts of garbage back here. This is, this is the real world back here because what you don't see is you don't see the fact that maybe the husband is dealing with pornography or beating his wife or there's an alcohol problem or people are leaving the Lord. That's back there. 
But Facebook is up here, and it can be very demoralizing as a person to go on Facebook and all you see is the good. And it's not to say to get off Facebook. It's not to be that dramatic. It's to understand and remember the truth, to look at the culture of heaven over our worldly culture. What's really going on, right? And it's a battle. It's a battle for your heart and mind because Satan does not want you to know and love God. And he will use anything. And love, and the reason why I'm speaking about love today, is love has become such a big thing in our culture where, where I mean, literally stores, businesses are being shut down because they're not giving business to a certain group of people, but that group of people says it's all in the name of love. Right? And people are being judged because of this. And it's, it's a terrible thing. I read in Relevant Magazine, as people consume... The media's view of love, it's become more common for relationships and marriages to be primarily based on a desire for happiness and personal fulfillment. When these feelings fade, people think love is gone and become an emotional train moving from one lover or spouse to the next. It's become such a problem that some have begun to refer to this mediated view of romance as emotional pornography, insinuating that popular expressions of love and romance rewire the brain in ways that recall the damage done by visual pornography. Just as visual pornography sets an unrealistic expectation for sex and physicality, the media's fanciful stories of love wire consumers to expect Hollywood-style kisses in the rain and constant epic moments of dramatic love. How can your real life compete with that? One of the things that has struck me is the formative power of consumerism. I have a quote here from Mark Powell. He says, we are shaped in ways that reach beyond our shopping habits. As consumers, our identity is changeable. We're not accountable to anyone, and we're free to disengage whenever we feel like it. More and more, these patterns are affecting our relationships, and we move around more. We connect with many people, but we're not so good at committing to them. It's, it's amazing at how commitment's gone. Commitment's gone, okay? And I wanted to tie in the worldly culture to our heavenly culture of love, and what's going on out there and how we bring it into relationships. Let me give you a real-world example. Uh, years ago, I was banking with TD Bank. And uh, we had a savings account. We were saving to buy a home at the time. We had our insurance through them. We had a vehicle loan through them. We had a lot of things. We were committed. We were committed members of TD Bank. I shouldn't say TD Bank. A, a bank in town. Um, <laughs> sorry. Maybe you work for TD Bank. Uh, all the management's changed, okay? So I use TD Bank just as a generalization. This is terrible. Anyway, my apologies if you work for TD Bank. It's not bad. This is everywhere. Everybody, everybody has their own relationships and businesses. So, um, <laughs> so we go in there, and they have a banner up, right? And the banner says, bank with us, start a new bank account with us, and you get uh, to get put into a draw for a trip to the Bahamas. I was like, sweet, I want to go to the Bahamas. Right? So I, uh, I, like, I, I said, I'd like to enter your draw. And he said, oh, well, welcome to TD Bank. I said, no, well, I've been banking with you guys since I was a fetus, right? I've been here for 10 years. And they're like, oh, uh, yeah, well, you can't enter the draw then. It's like, well, that's silly. I said, I'd like to speed the manager. So the manager comes out. It's like, how can I meet you? I said, I'd like to enter your draw. He goes, well, welcome to TD Bank. I said, no, no, I've been here for a long time. You should know me. I have a lot of things here. I said, I said I'd like to enter your draw. He goes, well, that's only for customers open a checking account with one automatic uh, deposit from your employment. I said, well, do you find that banner works? He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, that's inside the bank. That's kind of silly. He's like, no one ever said that before. I was like, well, maybe you should put it on the outside because everybody in here seems to be TD Bank customers. So, whatever, right? You're just messing with everybody's head. 
So I leave. Couple, I don't know, like a couple months later, I go back in there. Banner's gone. New banner's up. Entered a uh, new bank account. Now you get an iPod. Now this was when iPods had just come out. I was like, this is amazing. I had the huge Discman that you couldn't run with. You could walk maybe like this, but you couldn't run with it because it would sound like a, like a rap song. It was ridiculous. So I was like, whoa, I want an iPod. This isn't fair. This is like the trip. So I said, hi, I'd like to, I'd like to get a free iPod. She goes, well, welcome to TD Bank. Same thing, right? Deja vu. I said, manager, please. Manager comes out. You can see him. He opens the door. He sees me. He's like, oh, no. Right? I said, hey, Gord, what's up? I don't know if his name's Gord. He goes, hey, uh, how can I help you? I said, listen, um, I don't want to go through this whole thing again. I'd like my iPod. He goes, listen, I can't give you your iPod, Mr. Cowell. He says, I can't. There's a policy. We have so many, and it's for new customers. I said, listen, I said, there's nothing for commitment anymore. Nothing. I said, bank with you for 10 years. I have all these things. I said, I want an iPod. And he goes, I don't know what to tell you I can't. I said, listen, I'm going to make this very simple for you. You either give me an iPod or I'm pulling all my bank from you and I'll take a cashier's check today. And he's like, sir, it's a computer. I can't. And I was like, I'm out. I got a cashier's check, canceled my insurance. Bam. Went to another bank, RBC. Shouldn't have said that. And, <laughs> <laughs> and we're good. But what I'm saying is, is how many times you see that, right? It's nothing about commitment. Commitment's gone. They don't care about you. It's all about new customers, new clients. And we take this line of thinking, whether you're an operator uh, at your place of business or whatever, and it's, it's impossible to think that that culture, that worldly culture, doesn't affect us. How can it not? And it does, and we see it. We see it in relationships. There's nothing left for commitment. But God has always been committed to you. Always. I mean, he sacrificed. He, this is a crazy thing. God loves you more than he loved Jesus because Jesus died on the cross for you. He was ultimate commitment, right? And it's gone out there, man. That's it. And we need to see that. We need to see the forest for the trees. When we're out in the world, we need to keep having that biblical culture, that culture of heaven in our minds. And we need to see what's going on on Facebook and the lives in our community and say, ah, I get that. I see Satan in there. I see it, but I'm not going to follow that, right? Because I know I'm in God's word. I'm in the spirit. I relate with him, and he tells me which way to go, which path is straight and narrow in order to divert the world that we're in, in order to draw closer to him to bring his kingdom here on earth through us. A study by the Barna Group on divorce confirms that ideas about love and marriage are changing. It says, quote, interviews with young adults suggest they want their initial marriage, that's crazy, to last, but are not particularly optimistic about that possibility. The study reports there is also evidence that many young people are moving towards embracing the idea of serial marriages in which a person, person gets married two or three times. What do you think about that, Mel? Yeah, you don't like that idea, do you? I love you. Of course, the media sells the most exciting parts of love, but there's more to love than just excitement. There's also God-given purpose, okay? Purpose isn't always great, and it isn't always happy, right? Paul wrote letters from jail. But he experienced joy. Now, I have another sermon that I've written about the difference between joy and happiness. Because right now our culture is like, oh, whatever makes you happy. Whatever makes you happy. Happiness is the most important thing. Happiness has become the new God. It is. But joy, and that's feeling joy in knowing that you have a creator and a designer and he has a purpose for you and that you're walking in that purpose regardless of the trials and tribulations and the things that happen is more important. Because you have a purpose. Your life as a believer in Christ is to strategically give yourself away for the kingdom of God. Paul, uh, um, 
sorry, our world says here and now is the greatest good and making myself happy is paramount. Biblically, love is about loving the other person and giving to them. So enough about being a Debbie Downer. So what is love biblically? What is it? Well, we know 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. And if you don't know it, it's on your pamphlet. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Luke 6.35 says, But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. That's in, I always take that, and I, I never hide the fact that I have you, that I have you in my life. I shared once before that a guy at work that said, um, you know how expensive babysitters are? And I said, no, I don't. And he goes, you don't know how expensive babysitters are? I said, I have 300 people I use and abuse at church. Why would I pay for babysitters? I have brothers and sisters in Christ, and it says here that if you lend an enemy, you're not supposed to get anything back, and I'm a friend. So now I'm not going to get anything from anybody here, but <laughs> it's the truth. The granddaddy love statement of them all, we all know it. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loved us because he felt it. it, doesn't, it God didn't love us because he said he felt it. It says that God did something. We see biblically that love appears to be an action verb, not a feeling. Therefore, love is most importantly a choice. That's not to say feelings aren't involved. You see, love brings about feelings of joy, peace. It alleviates stress and gives hope. Let me animate it for you. I chose to love Melanie. At some point, to love my beautiful wife. And I took an interest in her. I spent time with her. I stood up for her. I gave her a shoulder to lean on, an ear to listen to. When we first started dating, we spent fun times together, talked, and took an interest in each other. These verbs, these actions, these choices were loving. And they were the words found in Jesus' definition of what love is. They're the same things that our children speak to us about love, a byproduct of these love choices or feelings. Because I spent time with Melanie, she didn't feel alone but secure. Because I stood up for her, she felt protected and at peace. Because I gave her a shoulder to lean on, she felt validated and understood. Feelings are a byproduct of love, not the definition of it. And back to Genesis where Satan takes truth and turns it on its head, C.S. Lewis said, love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. Knowledge can last, principles can last, but feelings come and go. But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love in the second sense, love as distinct from being in love, is not merely a feeling, it is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit reinforced by the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep that promise. Can you play some of that really nice music? Thanks. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. The point of today's message is to understand that we have a common enemy. And that enemy will use truth that's God's word, Christianity, media, people, whatever, to dilute and pollute God's word and ultimately try to move you away from him. 
One of those mistruths is that of love, that love is an emotion or a feeling. But it's not, it's a choice. And if you are having trouble forgiving someone, if you feel that you are falling out of love with your spouse or having trouble loving your enemy, that you can choose otherwise. You can choose to view love as God views love. You can choose to view God in a heavenly way instead of a worldly way. And how God instructs us to love and believe that God has implanted in you the miracle to love everyone from your enemy to those closest to you. If you're here today after service and you want prayer for your marriage, prayer to have the power of the Holy Spirit to forgive someone, then come on up for prayer. And let's pray as a congregation to have our eyes see what God wants us to see, to hear what God wants us to hear, to pray what God wants us to pray, and to understand things like love the way God wants us to understand so we can overcome the enemy and instill holy and righteous values to our children and uphold them within our community and throughout our lives. Let's pray. Father God, I give thanks. I give thanks for Pastor Lance. I give thanks for this awesome series, The Culture of Heaven. And Father God, as we walk through this, as we walk through your word, Father God, give us, through the power of your Holy Spirit, give us the ideas, the understanding of a heavenly culture, Father God. That we may not walk in a worldly culture, but in a heavenly culture in our marriages, in our relationships, in our workplace, that we can exemplify heavenly culture, the kingdom of God in and through us and have it permeate into the culture around us. Help us to be the light of the world, Father God. And we just ask that you help us understand to love the way you have called us to love and the way that you love us to others to enhance your kingdom, Father God. In Jesus' mighty name, Amen. Thank you. Have a great week, and thanks for listening to me. Uh, please, if you're looking for a bank, go to TD. I'm sure it's changed. Uh, RBC's great. Um, and thank you, and have a great week. Thank you so much. We hope you've been blessed by this teaching from Coley Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Holy Community Church, a place where families come together.